invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Exodus chapter 6. And I'm not going to read the 1 through 17, I'll read 1 through 13. That was my error. Exodus chapter 6, the verses 1 through 13. And here we hear God's word as follows. Hear the word of the Lord with me. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do, Pharaoh, to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will deliver, he will drive them out of his hand. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of, this la- out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses, and Aaron gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Then would you continue with uh, Exodus chapter 19 with me? Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Chapter 19, we continue to hear God's word. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord God had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, (coughs) Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, 
And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on, on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn people, lest they break through to the Lord to look to, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up and bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And our text for this morning is in the following chapter, chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, or out of the house of bondage, if you prefer. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. Today marks the first day of Advent. The Advent season begins today and ends on December the 24th, and its origins are actually in the Roman Catholic Church, and we refuse to celebrate as they do with all kinds of liturgies and litanies and candles and rituals, but Advent is a season of preparation and an opportunity for Christians to both look back to the long foretold first coming of the Messiah and then in turn to look forward to his coming again. Advent marks a season of hungering and longing and although Advent liturgies are not part of our celebration, Protestant churches, even uh, Reformed Protestant churches, do take the opportunity during Advent to focus in a particular way on the scriptural truths of Christ coming into the world and to savor once again the glorious promise of his coming again. And so as we look into God's word this morning, may all of us be refreshed, may we be renewed, and may our response be one of rejoicing as we read of God's faithfulness, and may we too cling to his Advent promises. Advent stirs our heart to anticipation, but it is becoming ever more difficult in our world to speak of anticipating the promises of God. You see, our world considers us to be archaic or old-fashioned or even naive. Oh, the gospel message may be wonderful for little children and little old ladies, but a reasonable, mature, thinking adult has long ago abandoned such fables, we're told. 
A little child born of a virgin? Preposterous. You. A dead man risen from death to life? You can't be serious, can you? So when the church once again commits herself to listening to what to her is the greatest story ever told, the world laughs, ridicules, and scoffs. And yet again this morning and in this season, we are privileged to consider once again the marvelous way whereby God prepared the way for the coming into the world of his own son. Once again, we have the privilege to tell ourselves and our children of the way of the Lord from paradise to Bethlehem. And and when we hear it again, we are driven once again to say, The Lord, the Lord has done great things for us. But but, but, but as we search our Bibles and as we tell the story once again, remember with me that this God of whom we now read is the same God of yesterday, today, and into all eternity. That same God still reigns and he will culminate the work of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And it shall surely be for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And if we are able to give an adequate definition of Advent, then we need to say it is a time of anticipation. It is a time of comfort. It is a time to take ourselves in hand and to stir ourselves to say it is known to us. It is known to us where world history is directed. It is known to us how it all will end. That's the message of our text this morning. And to that assurance, we direct our attention attention this morning and may God's spirit accompany us and may the Advent message sink deeply into our souls this morning. So I want to minister God's word to you this morning using as my theme, God continues his work of redemption. God continues his work of redemption. We want to recall his work of redemption in the past. We want to consider his work of redemption in the present and then we want to speak of God's work of redemption in the future. God continues his work of redemption, the past, the present, and the future. I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Congregation, how many times have we not heard those words? Each Lord's Day again, those words ring from this pulpit when God's law is set before us. And the danger, of course, is that we hear it so often and, and through this repetition that the words become so common and familiar to us that they, that they tend to lose some of their significance. But when we now consciously pay attention to those words for just a few moments and, and when we first of all set them within the historical context of where they were first used, then these words jump out at us, if you will, and they become oh so precious to us when we interpret them within the parameters of God's plan of redemption. And it is in that context that we will then in amazement see that God spoke those words not only to Israel in the old dispensation, but those same words are still important and significant for Israel living in the New Testament church. And then we will see that these words by which the law of God is introduced to us, that preamble, if you will, speaks volumes to us, also to us here in Bowmanville this morning. And then we will understand that we have great reason to anticipate, to eagerly commemorate and anticipate Advent. Follow with me. You see, when God first spoke these words to Israel, he directs their attention to their past. I am the Lord your God who has, in the past, who has brought you out of Egypt. And that deliverance was past. And God reminds them of their history. And we can imagine that when the children of Israel heard God remind them of that 
house of bondage in Egypt, then immediately it brought to them some somber and troubling memories. It was not a pleasant time for them there in Goshen. They remembered their fear, their sorrow, their anxiety. They remembered their oppression at the hands of the ruthless Egyptian taskmasters. And it ought not to surprise us that the word house of bondage spoke to them with great significance. It was, it was there in Egypt that they suffered captivity, slavery, bondage. Oh, they remember those days well. We can imagine that while, while they were there as slaves of Pharaoh, that they often asked themselves, who will deliver us? Who will deliver us from this captivity? It is all so hopeless. Who will release us from our slavery at the, uh, at the hands of the Egyptians? Our situation is desperate. Our situation is hopeless here. And we see no way out of our despair. But then a man named Moses appears on the scene. And he has a message of hope. But instead of deliverance, the life of Israel is made all the more unbearable. But that was not the end of the matter. Moses appears to them again, and he speaks the words of God himself after him to the Israelites. And we heard those words together from Exodus chapter 6. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. But, but, but you will remember that, that that road of deliverance was not an easy one for them. Ten plagues were required, if you will, if you will, ten times the Lord tested the faith of the Israelites. And each time they thought, now, now is the time of our deliverance. And yet each time again, they were disappointed. And then as now, God fulfills his promise, all of his promises, but he does it in his way and in his time. And then just as now, God's people had to learn to trust in the Lord and to wait patiently upon the time of the Lord. And finally, that great day did come. They were led out of Egypt by the hand of the Lord. And those who wait upon the Lord are never disappointed. And yet that was still not the end of the matter. Pharaoh assembles his fighting men and follows in hot pursuit. And Israel's fear mounts. They believe themselves to have gone from the frying pan into the fire, if you will. Uh, things, were, things were worse for them now than before. We can almost hear them. Now we will surely die. Where now is God's promise? Perhaps we should have stayed in Egypt. And still God's plan is fulfilled. You know the story. No human might will interrupt that. The redemptive work of God stands fast and immutable, unchangeable. What God promises is fulfilled and completed by the Lord of hosts. In Exodus 6, God had promised that he would deliver them. And God had kept that promise. And now in the words of our text, Israel was called to remember God's deliverance by his outstretched arm from Egypt. They were called to constantly remember how God had powerfully and supernaturally fulfilled his promises against all human odds. Even the mighty river gave up its natural laws at the command of the almighty God. And, and God had determined to deliver Israel and nothing, nothing would interrupt God's plan. Now that's a wonderfully inspiring story and it it warms our hearts, but we have to go beyond seeing Israel's deliverance. 
For us in the New Testament, when we remember God's deliverance, that, that memory and that imagery has got to have a much greater significance. You see, God has also delivered us. Oh, not from Egypt. No. When we remember God's deliverance for us, then we think not of the house of bondage in Goshen or in Egypt. No. We then remember that God has delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. God has led us out of the clutches of sin that held us bondage. We too were helpless and desperate. For us as well, there was no way out. In fact, our bondage, our bondage was even greater than that captivity of Israel. There was no way out for us. There was no way that we could return to our Father God. We too were slaves. We were slaves to sin. The chains of death bound us in Satan's clutches. But then, blessed be the name of God, in that each Sunday again we hear, I am the Lord your God who has, who has delivered you out of the house of bondage. And immediately our hearts need to beat with joy, with anticipation and with joy. We need to be moved to tears of gratitude every time we hear those very words. Because, because, because through faith in Jesus Christ, God has redeemed us and we are now free. Free from sin and shame. Free from the bondage of sin and Satan. Free to love, honor, and worship the Lord. That God has delivered us. That God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. And, and translated us into the kingdom of, of light. The kingdom of his son. In whom we now have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Is a fact of the past. And stands immutable. Immovable. For all who believe the gospel. The opposite is also true, of course. Those who do not believe remain in that bondage to slavery and sin. But all who believe, they have heard the gospel message. I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from the house of bondage. Thanks be to, to Golgotha. Thanks be to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Thanks and praise be to, the, to God who has delivered us. And it is now in that context that we live in hope and eager anticipation. It is therefore that Advent, of the, that, that is why Advent affords us great joy. God's work of redemption continues and marches on indeed. He has delivered us from the tyranny of Satan, but his work of redemption is not yet complete. God's work in and for us continues. Follow with me. The words of our text were given to Israel to remind them of their deliverance. But Israel sinned greatly in the matter. You could say that their blessed condition went to their heads. Because of their deliverance, Israel esteemed themselves to be better than others. They were kind of proud of their own self-worth. They felt themselves better than the surrounding nations. After all, God had rescued them. They exalted in their goodness, which, according to them, God had rewarded with deliverance. But, but, but God punished them for their sinful pride. We hear God thundering in Amos chapter 9. Did I, says God, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? In other words, Israel, it was not because of your self-worth that I delivered you. It was not because of your goodness that I delivered and rescued you. For after all, have I not also led the Philistines and the Syrians out of their bondage through my sovereign decree? 
In other words, Israel, do not pat yourself on your sanctimonious, self-righteous backs for all you have received. None of it was because you deserved it. All of it was out of sheer grace. It was because, says God, it was because, because of my love for you. And the same now must be remembered by us when we remember that God has delivered us from the bondage of sin and death and hell. It was not because of our goodness. It was not because we were any better than the rest of the world around us. It was not because we deserved it, chose it, or accepted it. What a blessed occasion it was for us this morning to hear Brother Herring confessing his faith in Christ. What a joy it is for us and for him to be welcomed into the community of believers. But, but, but the fact that he has been received within the company of the elect was not because of a choice or a decision that he made. No, the fact that Alan, the fact that you and I have been redeemed and delivered is only because of the grace of God. Congregation, all that we have, beginning already with our deliverance from death, it is all from God, all through God, all to God, and all for God's glory. Soli Deo Gloria was the watchword of the Reformation. All glory to God alone. But then in this context, a question arises in our minds, since God has also rescued those other two nations, was Israel then the same as the Philistines or the Syrians? Was there then no difference between the deliverance of Israel and the deliverance of the Syrians? How must we understand? How must we explain that? Was Israel not God's covenant people? Had God not granted them a special place in redemptive history? Oh, the answer to those questions is yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You see, Amos speaks these words to forbid Israel their own sinful pride and self-righteousness. But there was indeed distinction between the nations and that distinction was again solely due to the grace of God. Follow carefully with me. You see, God did indeed deliver the Philistines and the Syrians, but, 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 he delivered them only from their temporal, earthly circumstances at the time, and that was all they were promised, and that was all that they received from the grace of God. But Israel was to receive so much more. And that we also read in Exodus chapter 6. We read, I am the Lord your God who will bring you out of the house of bondage by my mighty outstretched arm. And, and, and I will make, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That promise wasn't made to the other nations. And that now was the second part of God's plan of redemption for Israel. He would deliver them from Egypt and he would make them into his particular chosen people. You see, God's plan of redemption was not yet complete. It continues. It was there on Mount Sinai that Israel saw God beginning to fulfill the promise that had been given already in paradise. And it was given only to them and not to Philistia or Syria. And now Israel heard God say in the words of our text, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the house of bondage. God had fulfilled his promise. I will deliver you. He had done so. They, had, they were indeed free from Egyptian bondage. But Israel still wandered without any direction for their theocratic living under God. We could say they were still unorganized, if you will. Oh, indeed, Moses' father-in-law gave him good advice when he said, Take men who will help you to govern because the task is too great for you. 
But this was still only the beginning from the house of bondage. They had been delivered from the slavery. They'd been transformed into a nation. But as yet they were still a nation without organizational direction. They were yet, what? They were without the law. They did not yet truly know their God. And what is a land where the citizens do not know their king? We know what happens when nations are rudderless. We know from the days of the judges when Israel had forgotten their king. And the consequence was that everyone did was right in their own eyes. My dear people, God, capture all of this with me. God continues to fulfill his promise of redemption. He had rescued a multitude of slaves, but now they needed to be transformed into a holy nation under the king of kings and in love in order that they would know how they were to live as a theocratic nation under God. God gave them his law. He gave it to them only and not to the surrounding nations. For this nation stood in a significant relationship to God. We can draw the parallels again for us as a New Testament church. We too we are to know ourselves to be separate from all of the rest of the unbelieving world around us. We too are to know our King, our, our King Jesus, and we are to know that our well-being is dependent upon our complete and total submission to God's law as that's given us in our Bible. My dear people, I remember serving a church in Michigan and it happened that the town fathers had decided to remove a stone-carved copy of the Ten Commandments out of City Hall. The Ten Commandments had hung in that place for decades, but the city fathers now felt that the world had sufficiently advanced that the law of God was not only no longer necessary, but even offensive to non-Christian people, of whom there were very many in our community. And so out went the law of God out of the town hall. You can imagine the outrage. Letters in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Letters to the editor of the local newspapers were legion. Radio talk show lines were buzzing. It made the evening news on television. Many members of my congregation were incensed. And what a wonderful opportunity God provided for me to explain to my congregation that the Ten Commandments, that the, the, town, the town fathers had done the right thing for the wrong reasons. Because the Ten Commandments did not and do not belong to the secular world. Apart from faith, God's law has no meaning. What has faith to do with unbelief? The law was given to, the law was the prized possession of the church. My dear precious saints, it is the church and not the world that stands in a particular relationship to God as his particular chosen people. And it stands to reason then that if, if we have fully appreciated and understood where and how God has delivered us from the tyranny of Satan, then our desire will be perfect obedience to his revealed will for our lives. And it becomes ever clearer to us that our lives need to change. Our lives need to change through the law of God and through that transforming power of Christ and the Spirit. Our lives need to be different. Our lives need to be different from those of our unbelieving neighbors. God desires a willing and an obedient people. 
as subjects of his kingdom. But as we continue with our text, Israel now stands at the base of Mount Zion. We read that, that narrative. God will speak to them, and they were afraid. We can imagine their fear. The mountain was covered by smoke because the Lord would descend there in a flaming fire. The entire mountain shook and trembled. <laughs> the trumpet blast echoed in the valleys, and Israelites, they trembled in fear. We can hardly imagine that awesome yet frightening scene that confronted them. They were terrified. Oh, how patient God needed to be with them and, and still also with us. Did they not know how gracious God had been? Had they already forgotten that God had promised to be their God? Oh, you know, it, I, I thought about this as I developed the sermon, and I thought if I was the Lord, I, I'm reasonably sure that I would have said, you know what, I have told you and told you, I, I won't tell you again. But not so the Lord. The Lord was patient and long-suffering towards them, and he instructs them again. They hear his voice, and he repeats almost word for word what he had told them already earlier. I am the Lord, your God. Israel, hear my voice. You see these things. You see the smoke and the fire, and you feel the mountain trembling. Israel, I am the Lord your God. I've told you that, and now I tell you again that I want to identify with you as my people. And God here openly proclaims, you are the people whom I have delivered from the house of bondage of Egypt. You are my people. God, so to speak, lays his hands upon them in blessing, and he declares, you are mine. I am in heaven. You are on earth. But here, in giving you this law, I lay an indissoluble connection between you and me. Imagine with me that scene before us. Among the nations, this nation, Israel, had no status. In fact, the opposite is true. It had only recently come out of slavery. Outwardly, outward strength or glory, they have none. And yet even in their helpless, hopeless condition, God confirms the covenant spoken to Abraham with, of all people, of, with Israel, the former slaves of Egypt. What a powerful message is given us here in the text. We've heard it so often that it becomes so familiar to us, and yet when we stop to carefully consider the words, then we see, we see God continuing his work of redemption. He had sworn to Abraham. He promised to deliver Israel from Egypt, and he had done so. But he was on to honor his promise to make them his people. And now he gives them the law in confirmation that they really are his people and to teach them how to live as his people. Oh, God's grace goes from glory to glory. And the same is true for us in the new dispensation. First of all, God delivered us from the bondage of sin that had enslaved us. And then, I am your God. You may call me, what? Abba, Father. Step by step, God leads his people to the place where he determines to have them. He determines to have them as his own children. His covenant promise stands firm and will be confirmed to us as well. He gives us his law in order that we might know him. Advent, a time to remember how God throughout history fulfilled his covenant promise in order that we may know and eagerly anticipate the great grace that still awaits us in God's plan of redemption. But think with me for a moment. Why did God take these people as, their own, as his own? 
Why did God covenant with Alan Herring? Why did God set Israel apart as his chosen people? Because of their piety? Because of their faith? Because they patiently waited upon the Lord and hoped in the Lord? No. So often they were not very pious. Often their faith was very weak. Often they ignored God and ran on ahead of him. No, it was not because of Israel. It was all because of God's great grace. It was all out of the love of the Father's heart. It was all in order that he would continue his plan of redemption from generation to generation. And people of God, this morning we have listened carefully to God's condescending love for Israel in the past. We have heard his prophetic promises. We have seen them fulfilled in the past. But from out of the past, God still calls us to direct our attention to the future. The trumpet blasts at Sinai point us to that trumpet blast of that last great day of the Lord when Christ will return on the clouds of heaven. Capture this with me. Sinai, the mountain of God's majesty, and the manger of Bethlehem. There are two parallel roads culminating in the return of Christ, but still more good news is given us this morning. Our text says in the introduction to the God's holy laws, we hear that every Sunday morning, every Sunday God comes to us. He comes to you and he comes to me and he says, I am your God. I have delivered you. I have rescued you from death and darkness and sin and hell. But now listen to me, says the Lord. Now listen to me. This is how you shall live before me as my people. In other words, demonstrate now to me your gratitude for what I have done for you in the way that you now live. Oh, my dear people of God, every Sunday morning, God sets that law before us, and he reminds us of his saving love for us. Each Sunday afternoon, you and I rise to our feet, and we confess this to be true. You confess that God has rescued you. You confess that God has made you his own possession. You confess that God has taken you as his people. You confess that Christ is king, your king. Live now, then, as a child of the king. That now is what God sets before us this morning in our text. He reminds Israel, he reminds you, and he reminds me. I am the Lord your God. I have rescued you. I have loved you. I have so loved you that I gave you my only begotten son. And now I ask of you the love of your heart in return. Love for God and love for your neighbor as written in my law for you. We mentioned earlier that we saw God fulfill two parts of his promise in Exodus chapter 6. First, he promises to deliver them. We saw him fulfill that promise as we watched Israel walking on the dry land through the Red Sea. Then God promised to take them as his particular people, and we saw God fulfilling that promise on Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. But there's a third part to the covenant promise. We read, I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. In other words, having been rescued, having been made God's people, was still not the end of the road for Israel. God insists that they go on as God's people, and that journey would not be easy or always pleasant. But, 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 God has promised I will bring you to your destination. God had come to Israel. He made them his own. 
He made them his possession. He says, I have laid claim on your life and your living. I have called you unto myself. I have placed you into my service. There is now no longer any option for you. It's either obedience to my law or disobedience. It will be either weal or woe for you. But at the same time, God had promised. He says, just as the mountains surround the city of Jerusalem, in the same way my love surrounds my people Israel. I am with you. I will surround you with my grace. You will remain children. You will not remain children in the wilderness. For no, I will lead you to the promised land. My dear people, God called to be saints here in Bowmanville. God still speaks the same words to you and to me this Advent morning. God says to you and to me, know what it is that I require of you. But know also that I have promised to give you the necessary grace to do my will. Know well that I will lead my Israel. I will lead my church safely through the wilderness of this world. A world with devils filled. I will lead them to a safe arrival in the promised land. He asks of us this morning. He says, have you ever seen any one of my promises fail? Have you not seen me lay the Christ in the manger of Bethlehem in order to open the gates of paradise for you? Why then would you doubt my promises? The people of God live out of those promises and that requires faith. It requires faith in the promises. That requires that we place all of our complete trust in him. Fear not, God is with you. I am the Lord, your God. Remember, remember God's promise. See how he has fulfilled them in your own life. Has God not initiated his work already in your baptism? Has God not caused you to be confronted with the gospel? Did God not come for you in his son as savior? Does he not remind you of his promises again every Sunday morning? Would he promise and not do it? If that question is in your mind, then the words of our text have escaped you. Let me repeat them for you. I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have brought you out of the house of bondage. And I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Shall we pray?